The socialists understand that they have these captive audience in the classroom, you know, starting in kindergarten all the way through college. And it's basically a death by a thousand cuts over and over and over again. These educators are indoctrinating them in their worldview. And by the time they graduate college, they're completely true believers, as it were. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature, and I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have Jennifer Cabani, who's the editor of The College Fix. So I want to welcome you, Jennifer, to our program. Thank you for having me. So tell me, Jennifer, can you just explain a little bit about who you are and the work that you're doing? Sure. So our website is thecollegefixfix.com, and we're a daily news website focused on higher education. And we cover all the campus higher education stories that the mainstream and legacy media likes to ignore. And we also train up undergrads who want to pursue careers in journalism, teach them how to identify stories. We edit their work. We give them a platform to publish And then we launch their careers through journalism internships. Oh, wow. That sounds wonderful. So like how many student journalists would you have? Uh, Any given year, we can have 75 to 100. Um, Myself and a couple other editors work hand in hand with them in a mentorship capacity to sort of teach them how to identify stories and ask the right questions and kind of train them up into a journalism career so that we can have more brave, liberty-minded young people out there joining the media and, and helping us maintain this very important fourth estate. Well, absolutely. Uh, let me ask you any idea or any concept or thinking, perhaps you might want to do something up in Canada. Well, we actually have over the years worked with some young Canadian undergrads and we cover a lot of the crazy drama going on at Canadian based universities. They're more woke than the ones in the United States, frankly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. No, I have a, a number of colleagues who are, are really struggling in the academic uh, scene where they have to be very careful. And some of them uh, who feel very confident and they're just basically not worried about their career per se are willing to just jump out and, and, you know, uh, hold everyone to account, which is uh, quite fascinating. And the whole academic world is one that I've uh, been very concerned about just in part because I've spent uh, too much of my life perhaps in the classroom as a student more than as a professor, although I've done a little bit of that. It strikes me that when we do not have freedom of speech in the classrooms, we're, we're in a lot of trouble as a society. Oh, absolutely. The socialists understand that they have these captive audience in the classroom, you know, starting in kindergarten all the way through college. And it's basically a death by a thousand cuts over and over and over again. Uh, These educators are indoctrinating them in their worldview. And by the time they graduate college, they're completely true believers, as it were. Yeah. And then they get to implement that ideology in the workplace, in the corporations and in halls of government and all the rest. I don't know what uh, what the actual numbers are, but it seemed to me um, 
I saw something recently where when you look at the numbers of left-leaning academics in any given university, it's it's like up to 90% or something and uh, compared to any conservative-leaning professors. Absolutely. They've done a lot of research. They've looked at the amount of donations that professors give to Democratic candidates. They've looked at their party affiliation registration And never is it 50-50 or 60-40 or even 70-30. It's always, you know, 90-10, 98 to 99-1%. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, Democrats are teaching our children. So how do we, as a society, bring about the, you know, we, we, we talk about the importance of critical thinking, but how are we able to ensure we have critical thinking when we only have the one view that's being taught that's being emphasized in our universities? Well, I always say that proactive parenting is one to be the one of most important keys to saving America, Canada, in the sense that we have got to make sure that our kids' teachers are not their only teachers. Talk to them about what they're learning in school and counter everything with facts, data, logic, so that your kids are armed, they can discern BS from truth. They won't fall for it, essentially, in the classroom. They'll understand, they'll be able to identify, you know, when it's subjective as versus objective and be able to parse that out um, and understand what their teacher is trying to attempt to do there. Have you found that it's becoming increasingly difficult being able to have a conversation? Like, it seems to me that when it comes to politics, uh, when it comes to even social policy, you know, we saw... Uh, over the last couple of years with the uh, COVID regulations and all the rest. And literally families are being split apart over the vaccine, for example. But is it becoming increasingly difficult to even bridge the gap and have the conversation? Absolutely. What right of center folks are, are good at is being willing to engage in that conversation, answer the questions, discuss the situation. But unfortunately, on the left, they are not interested in that discourse. They're not interested in that debate. So we can't even have the conversation with them anymore. Uh, they shut us down. They shout us down. They cancel us. They enact laws to keep us silent. Uh, they censor us. They memory hole us. Uh, we're, we're fighting a tough battle because we are not even allowed to engage. And when you can't even engage in that conversation, there's no, there's no winning solution to that. So because usually if you present somebody with some reasonable facts and some calm, logical data, at least they'll give you a chance, you know, they'll hear you out. But at this point, we barely have that opportunity anymore. Then that becomes very frightening. Just the other day I had on this program, a professor who I asked, okay, so what do we do? <laughs> and uh, and he said to me, well, I'm not sure there's anything we can do. I said, well, okay, so what's the future? What, what does it look like? Well, is it Barry? Look, think of history. And, and the history would tell us that it's not a very happy scene going forward because if you don't agree with the narrative, you know, you're going to be literally imprisoned. And I, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm pinching myself even now thinking about that. But we do have examples, right? I mean, uh, throughout history, where if you do not have the accepted view of the government, of, you know, the socialist mindset, if you look at the various uh, countries that have taken on socialism to, or taken it right to the uh, communist extreme, that 
the opportunity of, of engagement, the opportunity to be able to sit down and dialogue, which is the important part, it seems to me, in order for us to maintain freedom. And that's what we're trying to do is just trying to have these dialogues. But it's becoming, I'm sensing there is pessimism setting in. And I, 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 I don't want to be a pessimist. I want to be an optimist. I want to, you know, see things happen. I want to see that we can sit down and, and let's parlay. Let's, let's get into discussion. One of the things we, I don't know if you saw much about what's been happening in Canada this last winter, but I was up in Ottawa for three days of the trucker protest. And all I saw as I walked the street were people who were having a great time. Like, I mean, this was in the middle of the winter, minus 25 Celsius. It was bitter cold. I could only be out there at any given time for like two or three hours and then had to go warm up someplace. And even then I was like chilled to the bone. But one of the things that frightened, I think, authorities was the fact that we had such a protest in the middle of winter. That's how motivated these truckers were. And to see it knocked down in such a brutal manner is something that we have not ever seen in the history of Canada. And it kind of symbolizes, I think, the fact that it's very difficult to have a conversation. The prime minister refused to come out and speak with them. It was just this, this absolute, we're not going to talk. Right. What do we do? I, I mean, are you pessimistic about the future here or do you see signs of optimism? I just want to say, first of all, to your audience as American, I was so proud of that protest. Uh, I was so yeah. proud of Canada and every single person who stood up for truth, for free speech, for reason, for choice. I just, I just want to tell you, I watched that procession and I, my heart leapt with joy. Mm -hmm. And that gives me optimism mm -hmm. that there's still good people willing to fight the good fight. And that's what I saw there. And despite the mainstream and legacy media and CBC, I think they were really trying to paint them as extremists. But the reality is, is everybody knew what was really going on. I think personally, we all knew that they were just fighting for, for their lives, their livelihoods, their, the right to choose, the right to speak and the right to free speech. So I'm very proud of Canada for that. And I think it was a, a, a turning point in this global battle uh, against the COVID tyranny, if you will. So mm. hats off to you. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Canada, for, for standing up um, and doing what you did. So that gives me optimism that there are people still willing to, you know, to fight the good fight and to, to demand freedom. But on the flip side, as King Solomon once wisely wrote, there's nothing new under the sun, right? right. Everything is cyclical <laughs> and yeah. we've never seen a thriving democracy or republic, you know, last over, you know, a couple hundred years. I think Rome was destroyed from within with its own bloated bureaucracy and policies. We've seen kingdoms come and go over, over the millennia. So um, you know, America was a very unique experiment based on a very special founding um, and, and humanity continues to try to, to tear that down brick by brick. And so far they continue to do a good job. You know, that there's an expression, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So bite by bite by bite, they're tearing down this incredible republic. We'll just have to keep fighting back against that. But again, history tells us that <laughs> you know, it's, it's not looking good. If you, if you think about, has we ever seen a successful republic 
survive in the history of mankind? Well, the answer is no. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that so that really should uh, cause us all to just step back and say, okay, hold on here a minute. What's happening? Let's have that dialogue because we're on the same piece of real estate here. We've got to learn to live with each other. But if we're if we're going to have this constant opposition, this constant unwillingness to engage, then we are in trouble. Now, one of the things that I've noticed happening in the United States, in some ways, it's developing a wee bit in Canada too. And that is, there is kind of like a, a natural migration from a more, those who are, how would I say, conservative are going to conservative states and so forth. And, and we're seeing really, I think it's one of the first times in in a long time that California's population is actually decreasing. People going to Texas, going to Florida, Tennessee. I have, uh, you know, friends and so forth that have done that. I mean, what does that say for your country as well? In Canada, we're seeing people leaving Ontario, which historically was a very conservative bastion, but now people are moving out to Alberta, which is kind of like the Canadian Texas. Am I re reading that right? Is that what's happening in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. Small businesses and large businesses are fleeing Democratic-run states because the, the policies of the Democrats are just so onerous. They don't care about entrepreneurialism. They don't care about you know trying to, to help these companies provide for their workers. They enact green policies that are so difficult to follow. Taxes, the regulation, the bureaucracy, the red tape, the politics, the gas prices. I mean, from what light bulb you can use, what car you can drive, what gas you can you know put in your tank, what you can eat, whether you compost or not, every little thing is being regulated in Democrat-run states. And frankly, they're sick of it. I mean, people are just absolutely sick of it. And I imagine it's the same in Canada too. They want to be free and they want to live in a region where the, the politicians are not telling them how to live every single aspect of their life. When you're young journalists are going about on the university campuses and are dealing with all this ideological maelstrom that we see, see going on. So what are the reports? What, what are you hearing on the ground? I, I joke there's never a dull moment at the college fix. I mean, we are constantly reporting on cancel culture, Toxic masculinity, the feminism and gender wars, you know, lawsuits, Title IX, due process, uh, curriculum issues, um, political correctness. There's never a dull moment on college campuses which have far surpassed satire over the years. I mean, you know, the, the headlines are what we're producing on a daily basis. So, you know, just make you laugh, make you cry <laughs> the whole nine yards. Can you give, give us a couple of examples of the extreme stories that perhaps would have come up in recent days? A teacher got in trouble because she brought cotton to her classroom for a lesson on slavery. We have a story up about university that wants uh, professors to use gender neutral pronouns or else. We have a story about students who viciously mocked Jesus ahead of Easter. We have a story about how white women can never truly be anti-racist because they're white. Uh, we have a story about how Harvard wants to give $100 million for slavery reparations. And on and on and on it goes. Mm. 
Wow. Yeah. And and so a lot of this kind of stuff, there's almost no ability to be able to have the opposite opinion or the opposite view permitted on the campus. One of the things I saw recently was uh, Governor DeSantis is bringing in new legislation. It has to do with the whole tenure of university professors that this now is being reviewed. I was speaking with a retired professor just yesterday. In his view, the whole tenure system, even here in Canada, is something that needs to be looked at. Can you explain to us what DeSantis is trying to do and what the problem is he's trying to fix? So he signed a bill that essentially allows campus leaders to enact post-tenure review. What that means is every five years, their tenure status would be possibly revoked if they didn't do a good job as a teacher, as a professor, maybe let their personal politics get in the way of just objective research and teaching kids what they need to to learn to be successful in life. So uh, this post-tenure review concept is a vital way that we can enact oversight on these colleges and universities because for so long, professors have kind of said and done anything they want under the guise of tenure. So this post-tenure review concept is something that, you know, parents, watchdogs, legislatures, and even students can use to ensure that the best of the best are teaching our kids. Just to play a little bit of a devil's advocate of sorts is that the argument for the tenure system is that, okay, academic freedom is such that you should be able to explore whatever it is that you're working on in, as, in your professional life as, a, as an academic. But now the state is coming in and seeking to um, regulate that some. What's the response, do you think, with respect to those kinds of criticisms? I mean, I, I almost scoff at that because what's being taught in our, our colleges and universities right now is so absurd that, you know, all white people are racist, you know, math is racist, you know, history is racist. The, the curriculum is so corrupt and nobody has done a thing about it that the pendulum is so far askew that I don't think a little post-tenure review is really going to matter because... The, nobody is telling these teachers what they can and can't teach. I mean, we, ju- we just had a story today about a hardcore pornography class at, at a university in Utah. The professors have free reign to do whatever they want. Give me a break. They, they've been hiding behind tenure for a really long time to say and do whatever they want. But there's got to be some accountability. When we think of university education, what is the gold standard? And is it a standard that we can say that reasonable people would agree with? I I mean, I have some ideas myself, but I just wanted to see what you would think of some kind of a of a standard uh, to be able to for us to be able to say, well, look, this is going too far from a philosophical point of view, the Socratic method, you know, the, the ability to have academic discourse to allow ideas to be raised and discussed and debated is essential. Uh, for any for any successful you know higher education, so the fact that you know th- there's so many ideas and concepts that can't even be talked about or broached nowadays, microaggressions are shutting young people up. Being accused of being pariahs on campus are shutting people up. You know, if you're conservative, you know, immediately the ad hominem attack of well, you're racist, and I don't have to listen to you. You're invading my safe space. So in order to have a good education, the the, the kids on the left need to hear the arguments of the right. Now, whether they want to reject them is their choice but at least you have a chance to hear them first and right. foremost. So we have to we have to allow the Socratic method and open discourse and open debate and academic freedom to 
flourish on campus. The second thing is we have to allow the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math to remain uncorrupted from the critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, ideology and dogma. Let science be science. Let two plus two equal four. You know, let these scientists do their work, cure cancer, find treatments for Alzheimer's. I don't care if it's a white male that finds a cure for Alzheimer's or, you know, a lesbian female, but just let them be the best scientists they can be. And let's stop implementing quotas in our science fields and just let the best minds do their jobs to to advance the important work of STEM. So I, I feel like that's really important too. Um, there's been too much affirmative action in, in the STEM fields. And the problem with that is we're trying to find the cure for cancer. That's the most important thing. The great books. I mean, we're free because of Western civilization today. We're free because of the ideas that were brought forth in the Enlightenment so to to suggest that we don't have to study that or learn that, you know, from Plato to Locke because they were white guys is ludicrous. I mean, we're free because of the the principles under Greco-Roman ideas all the way to the Western civilization, enlightenment, all the way up to the Magna Carta and now today in America. I don't care if they were written by white people. They benefited humanity. They benefited the globe. And we need to study them. They're the most important concepts because they ushered in the freedom that people enjoy today. So we have to stop basing what we learn um, on the color of the skin of the person who presented it. Right. So those are just three ideas right there. <laughs> yeah. No, and and uh, my concern is, is that we have just absolutely been willing to throw out our entire civilization in this new march of identity politics and woke ideology with a failure to understand exactly the privileged position that we currently hold in the history of mankind, really. We did not have this, even just this technology where I can speak to you from Ontario and you're all the way over in California I mean, this just did not happen. There were a lot of science that has gone into this technology. And we have an amazing ability, it seems to me, for the young people of our age to be able to go to university, spend four years, not have to worry about work, not have to worry about where their meals are coming from. They just simply walk to the cafeteria, go to their classroom, and be able to think about the big ideas. The idea that our civilization is so corrupt that we have to go around tearing down statues of anyone who's had any kind of problem in the past. And if the reality be known, every single one of us is tainted with something we should not have done or said or written or tweeted about. And we're all, as it were, you know, the example of if you're without sin, throw the first stone. And, and it's kind of like we have lost that ability to be able to appreciate and wonder about the amazing era in which we live. And we're, it saddens me that we are at a point where we're willing to just throw all that away. I have no patience for these spoiled cry bullies who try to claim as, as they're attending Yale and Harvard and Dartmouth that they're oppressed. I mean, I, I scoff at the notion. When I think about the women, for example, in Africa who are literally having parts of their uh, feminine anatomy chopped off, when I think about the forced arranged marriages of young women in, in some of these third world countries, when I think about the human trafficking that is taking place across Africa and Asia, when I think about the Uyghurs in, in China, when I think about 
I guess real oppression, real, real ongoing modern day slavery, real, real problems. I mean, you know, there are homosexuals being executed in the Middle East. Why can't we put things in perspective here? Right. Uh, I'm not trying to negate the original sin of slavery. It was, it, you know, it was horrible, but you know, it's also a global problem, <laughs> and yeah. it's been a global problem of humanity. And it's not the original sin of just America or whatever. This this idea that these college kids nowadays are you know oppressed, have it so hard, and face you know such systemic racism. I really have no patience for it. They're they're, they're what we call cry bullies. They don't know what real oppression is. I'd like to drop them in the middle of of some countries that are under Sharia law in Africa, and then we can see how they feel about attending Harvard at sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. <laughs> Maybe they won't right. mind it so much anymore. <laughs> With all this that is going on in the modern universities and uh, the inability to be able to look at the other side. It strikes me that we are fast approaching. And and I I, I think of the work of Jonathan Haidt. Is it yep. He's basically saying, look, the time has now come for us to uh, recognize that if we're not going to allow the conservatives an opportunity to be able to have their say, and in his book, The Righteous Mind, he does, I think, a fabulous job of outlining what the issues are and so forth. But he says, look, if we don't allow this to have open dialogue, then we should not be surprised that the conservatives of the country will insist that the taxpayers not pay for the public universities that are no longer doing the job of continuing the civilization of freedom. And so I think that that's a real threat, it seems to me. And have we seen any of that developing at all. So we're talking about when is the higher ed bubble going to burst? And what I've found is that it's not going to burst like a big balloon pop. It's kind of like fizzling, like a little small leak and the, the air is like, <laughs> you know, coming out of it. We'll never get rid of higher education completely because people love college football and they love college basketball and they love March Madness and they love their sports. And we've got to have college football or else America will cease to exist. So we're not ever going to get rid of you know, higher edge completely. It's the, the sports industrial complex is far too important to the American fabric. However, I think what we have seen is people understand that there's other options. There's the military. There's vocational school. There's learning to code. There's starting at a community college and taking some electives and finding your aptitudes. There's plumbers and electricians that are making more money than I ever will. So I think I think the understanding of the return on investment for you know straight into college is not where it was is not where it used to be and people are being more discerning more critical and wondering you know i don't really like to study anyway i like to work with my hands maybe i'll be a contractor there's different pathways there's different options how about the whole idea of private universities i've i've often thought of the american system of education as great in that there's such a, a great variety and that there are a lot of private schools, a lot of religious schools, although they are now being challenged in a big way. Um, and one of the things I've found here in Canada, we have very few private independent universities. In fact, even the one that tried to have a law school a few years ago was denied that because of their view on marriage, for example. You can't have lawyers graduating from law schools that think marriage is, uh, you know, the traditional one man, one woman in Canada. It goes against our charter values, the court says. So anyhow, but in the United States, you have 
a lot of options. And, and one school comes to my mind, or at least one that I've seen a fair bit, is Hillsdale College over in Michigan, uh, where uh, there seems to be, you know, getting back to the great books, looking at uh, civilization, where we came from, what the importance of, of Western thought and so forth is. Is there any increase in those private schools or even uh, attendance in those private schools? Or are we still stuck on wanting to get the Ivy League diploma? Oh, I hear from parents all the time saying, you know, where should I send my kid to college? You know, where can we avoid this indoctrination? And there are a lot of alternative higher education institutions popping up that are like based in the classical structure, you know, the traditional liberal arts college. More and more of those are being launched, offered. They have the University of Austin that just launched, which is this famous, you know, where all the sort of like canceled professors are now, te- you know, te- going to teach the kids. Oh, wonderful. Uh, you might have. You might have heard of that. So no, I haven't. Are, so that's called the University of Austin. Yeah. So um, basically, it has Peter Bogosian and oh, yes. um, a couple of other quote unquote canceled professors who just won't toe the line and you know who won't push the narrative. They're independent thinkers, and uh, they're going to be teaching you know some grad students to starting this summer, and they eventually hope to have a full blown brick and mortar college down there. So people are seeing the opportunity here to establish and develop new higher education pathways. There's a hunger for that. And and the gap is being filled in a variety of different ways. So then one of the problems with that, uh, starting up a new uh, institution, is that the accrediting bodies are often also not so keen on having these private schools being accredited. What is happening in that area? Well, this is interesting because it kind of circles back to the, the new law that, that DeSantis signed, which addresses what he called the accreditation monopoly. Okay. And he questions the role that accredited agencies play in higher education. He said when he announced signing the bill that he doesn't know where these accreditation agencies come from. They're basically self-anointed. He said they have an inordinate amount of power to shape what's going on at these universities. Why? How? Who said that they could have yeah. this type of power? So the bill that he signed in Florida, and, and perhaps it'll, it'll spread, requires diversity with the accreditation. So the university can't keep going to the same accreditor over and over and over again. He said that's going to be very significant and that he hopes it addresses the accreditation monopoly. Okay, well, that's awesome. That's excellent to hear because it it strikes me that many Many people, parents, for example, are afraid to send their children to those universities that don't have accredited degrees and all the rest of it. Okay, so now as we are looking towards the future and again, trying to figure out exactly what happens, where we go from here, I like the idea that people are even looking beyond university. My wife always reminds me that I would have made more money had I stayed in private practice and (laughs) continued on instead of being so concerned about academics. And uh, and she's absolutely right. Certainly, I look at the lawyers, even our daughter, who's a lawyer today, is making more money than I've ever made probably in my lifetime. So because of the pursuit of academic work, the idea of looking beyond the university is something that, you know, we've always uh, seen that as the gold standard, you know, get a university degree, get a good job and all of that. But certainly, um, as we see right now here in Canada, at least in certain areas, the 
trades people who are involved in carpentry, all of the electrician, plumbers, all of those guys are just, I mean, they can pretty much write their own ticket at this point. So there is that element that's changing within society at large. But I also think it's, it's still important for us to be able to continue on the story of Western civilization. We need to still be able to, to do that. And so organizations like yours is so very important to be able to uh continue on and actually give encouragement to the young people to be able to say, hey, listen, we are here for you. We're here supporting you. What other programs are you doing for the college-age students in the work that your your organization is doing? So I mean, we're very niche because I came up through the ranks of a daily newspaper. And so we really are journalism-focused. I mean, I don't know if you remember a time when you actually had to get your news from your driveway. <laughs> but I act, that's my day. You know, I mean, we, yeah. I used to work for a daily newspaper and, you know, every day we'd write the article and it wouldn't show up until, so, you know, it was delivered at 5 a.m. by a, you know, some guy in a, in a station wagon. So now, of course, we have, you know, this, this daily news cycle. It's, it's just a, a beastly thing to feed. I mean, I, I kind of joke with my students, you got to feed the beast because they're excited. They did the one story. I'm like, on to the next. <laughs> um, but we're we're very niche. We're very journalism focused, and and we're launching media careers. So that's what we do at the College Fix. But right. it's important because so much of the problems that we see today is because the larger population is being fed propaganda as opposed to facts. The subjectivity in what legacy media sees as news. I mean, look at back at uh, you know the the American election, the last presidential election, where. The legacy media ignored the Hunter Biden laptop story, right? right? And, you know, that whole thing. That's news, but they weren't reporting on it. So what we try to teach our students is you don't have to, you decide what's what's newsworthy. I mean, we, we report objectively, we get both sides, we quote both sides, but what we see as news is where the subjectivity comes in. It's an important concept to teach these young people that you don't have to follow the pack. Go where the news is and follow that and you'll you'll be able to tell some important stories out there. But I think that there are growing movements in Canada and America. I mean, you look at um, Jordan Peterson's following, mm -hmm. a lot of like Turning Point USA and you know, other groups out there on, on American campuses that are you know out there trying to say, hey, we have a right to be here. We have a right to speak. We have a right to engage. And they're not wilting wallflowers. They're out there fighting the good fight too and defending their right to say what they want to say. So there, there is a counter culture on the campus, both in Canada and, and the U.S., that is, is demanding the right for, for discourse. It just occurred to me that an organization like yours could could really help us here, First Freedoms Foundation, because we're always looking for people who would write stories about what's happening in Canada. And maybe you would have some students who'd be interested in looking at some stories that are going on in this country and say, hey, what about this? What about that? Of course, you would probably want to publish it first on your site, but we would be absolutely thrilled to have them come over and uh, publish on ours. I, I've, I've been very much impressed with the work of Jeffrey Tucker at the Brownstone Institute. Now, he's centering primarily on the issue of COVID. But what we're trying to do is we're dealing with the first freedoms. We get it from a 1953 Supreme Court of Canada decision by Justice Rand, who talked about the freedom of speech 
freedom of conscience. He said freedom of religion. I've kind of broadened it to say freedom of conscience and the inviolability of the person. So anything along those lines, and of course, that's very broad because there's so much that fit under that. And and his idea was, you know, these are the rights that exist even before Canada became a country. Like, I mean, they're inalienable. It's because we are human beings, we have these rights kind of idea. So we would certainly be open to have any of your students writing about what's happening in this country. This kind of work that you're doing is, uh, there's a great need for this the world over and certainly here in Canada. One of our top stories actually right now is focused on a professor at Mount Royal University named Frances Widowson. I don't know if you've heard of her case. No. Well, you could share that with your following, um, but she lost her job for questioning wokeism and she's fighting to maintain her job. She has an arbitration date set, but uh, you could share that with your audience. We also have one of our top stories this week was about a science professor job opening that's limited only to women, trans, non-binary or two-spirit folk. And that's at Canada University of Waterloo. That's right. So we are actually very active in reporting on some of the stuff going on in Canada, and you're more than welcome to share these articles with your following. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much. We'll certainly keep tabs on that because we want to take advantage of, of the great work you're doing. If you type in Canada in our in our search engine, yep. oh, I tell you, you Canada's kept us busy. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Is there anything else you would like to, to share with uh, our audience? I cannot emphasize enough that proactive parenting is going to save this nation, this continent. You cannot just send your kids off to school and expect that everything's going to be all right. The, the schools have been designed to, you know, it's kind of an extreme word, but brainwash your children with a certain ideology. And you have got to spend some time at the dinner table, on the couch, on the car rides, discussing these issues and making sure they're aware of the facts and logic and data that underpin the principles and ideals of freedom, liberty, a democratic republic. And if they don't, they might fall hook, line, and sinker for the crap they're teaching at college, and you're going to end up paying for it. I don't, you know, parents are often on the hook for helping their kids through college. You want to pay for them to be indoctrinated? Don't do it. You know, start young when they're five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And you got you got 18 years to make sure that when they get into college, they're not going to fall for this stuff. Great advice. Well, Jennifer, <laughs> I want to thank you so very much for being with us on this program today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And I and I really appreciate all that uh, the UK Canadian freedom fighters are doing up there, too. We're all in this together. Well, folks, I want to thank you for joining us for this conversation. It uh, was very enlightening and helping us to understand that the issues that we face here in Canada also are paralleled in the United States. And, you know, you may not agree with the opinions that are expressed here on this program by either me or my guest, but that's okay. Because the important thing for us is to have dialogue, for you to hear something that you've never heard of before, that perhaps you disagree with. But it's important for us to hear from you as well. And so I encourage you to contact us as we are continuing to encourage open, fair, transparent dialogue. And now until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, 
but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca